going to conclude our series in uh, the life of Abraham and following his journey of faith as God called him out. God said, uh, Abraham, leave your native country, go to a land I'll show you. And we're discovering that the life of Abraham and the life of learning to walk by faith, we can relate to, we can see ourselves in his story. And my hope is that you're growing in your ability to walk by faith by seeing how God works with Abraham. And so we've been watching this progression um, and, and learning about him. If you've missed some of these in this series, you want to catch up. we got these messages online. You can follow along and catch up on them. But it's been uh, fascinating to watch this and to learn um, from Abraham and from how God works with him. Today we're going to uh, finish up the series with this focus, this emphasis. Today from Genesis 18, it is this, that following God <clears throat> means trusting his character. Following God means trusting his character. God is leading you out into the unknown. As we've said before, nobody knows the future. We don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. We live in some uh, unsettling times. We came through uh, uh, 2020, which was uh, more than any of us thought it would be. No one could have seen that. And here we go into a new year, and we're already a couple months in. And uh, the future's unknown. Yet the truth is that God knows the future. He's already there. Uh, and he can help guide you into it. you got to learn to trust him. you got to learn to walk by faith and to lean on him and to walk with him and to, to, to discover um, who it is that he is. And so God wants to um, come near to us. He wants us to walk with him and have an intimate relationship with us where we know him and he knows us and, and we're close. The truth is that in the world we live in, a lot of people, as I watch them struggle with God, struggle to know if they even want to get to know God, is typically those struggles, as I have watched, revolve around who God is, a perception of what his character is like. And many people run into problems throughout life, and then they uh, see those problems of being initiated by God. My grandfather um, lost his wife. She was about 33, 34 years old. And she passed away of disease. They never really figured out what it was. It was difficult, horrific to watch her struggle. And then she died. She left him with three little girls. My mother was the oldest. And he read the Bible. He began to read the Bible through. Looking for answers. Looking for why did this happen. And, and, and try to find some meaning to it. Because he was hurting. He was devastated. Crushed. And so he read the Bible through several times. As he rode the bus to work in Salt Lake City, Utah. And with only... Uh, uh, his only religious background being kind of nominal Mormonism, he didn't have a lot of direction to really understand, really understand the Bible even or who God is. But after reading it through several times, he didn't find anything that satisfied him. I don't know that it said he didn't understand what the Bible had to say, but he, did, he wasn't satisfied that God had, in his perception, God had done this to him, taken his wife. Why would that happen? And so... Um, Oftentimes, well-meaning Christians can say to a person experiencing that kind of loss, well, God, it's part of God's plan for you. And yet, um, that usually leaves people saying, well, God has a pretty bad plan then, right? And so that's how we feel a lot of times. That's our experience. Difficult things happen. And if we don't know God's character, we're liable to blame him for something he's not responsible for. Or we're liable to tell somebody that he's behind something that he's not. Because God is not the source of evil. It didn't come from him. But in order to know that and to be able to decipher these things, we have to know his character. And so um, Abraham is going to go deeper with God this week 
he's going to learn more about who God is. And what's so amazing to me in this chapter, in this exchange between God and Abraham, is that God patiently brings Abraham along. And he allows him to see who he really is. The truth is that the Bible tells us a lot about God. In Isaiah 40, verse 28, this is said, Have you never heard? Have you never understood? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of all the earth. He never grows weak or weary, and no one can measure the depths of his understanding. God is beyond us. He's outside of our ability to comprehend. And yet he comes to us in an intimate way, revealing to us who he really is. And still, so many people, though, stay separate. They keep God at arm's length. They don't understand who he is. They feel as though he's just waiting, like my grandfather did. He's just waiting to bring some devastating calamity on their life because maybe he doesn't like them. Maybe he's angry at them. Maybe they did something wrong, and so they have this perception of God. It's kind of like the World War II story of World War II is almost over. News of the armistice had not yet, or had reached the troops, but the actual order to cease fire had not yet arrived on the front lines. And so at this moment, in this time of waiting, the war's over, but it's not yet over, a bursting shell tore into uh, a shoulder's flesh and opened a wound. And as he lay bleeding out on the ground from this wound in this time where the war was over, but it wasn't yet over, he said, isn't this just like God? Sometimes that's what we think. It's how people view it. And yet what I find in that case, as well as others, when people struggle with God, is God good, is he not, is that we have this habit as human beings of projection. Maybe you've heard of projection. It's a psychological thing we do. Where we have an issue, I'm not honest, and so I think everyone around me is dishonest. As I project my problems onto them, my character issues onto them. And I just see that happen when it comes to God. A lot of people think God is manipulative. God's not manipulative. Doesn't need to be manipulative. It's not part of his character. But people project their own manipulative nature onto God and think that he must be that way. And so we, people struggle. In our text today, as I said, we're going we're gonna to get to know more about God. He's going to reveal more of his character to us. But he's really revealing it to Abraham. The relationship between God and Abraham is deepening. In our story today, in our text today, Jesus visits Abraham. If you're in Genesis 18, let's start reading. Follow along as I read, starting in verse 1. The Lord appeared again to Abraham near the oak grove belonging to the Mamre. One day, Abraham was sitting at the entrance to his tent during the hottest part of the day. He looked up and noticed three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he ran to meet them and welcomed them, bowing low to the ground. My Lord, he said, if it pleases you, Stop here for a while. Rest in the shade of this tree while water is brought to wash your feet. And since you've honored your servant with this visit, let me prepare some food to refresh you before you continue on your journey. All right, they said, do as you have said. So Abraham ran back to the tent. He said to Sarah, hurry, get three large measures of your best flour, knead it into dough, and bake some bread. Then Abraham ran out to the herd and chose a tender calf and gave it to his servant, who quickly prepared it. When the food was ready, Abraham took some yogurt and milk and the roasted meat, and he served it to the men. As they ate, Abraham waited on them in the shade of the trees. 
Where is Sarah, your wife? The visitors asked. Well, she's inside the tent, Abraham replied. Then one of them said, I will return to you about this time next year, and your wife, Sarah, will have a son. Sarah was listening to this conversation from the tent. Abraham and Sarah were both very old, and by this time, uh, by this time, and Sarah was long past the age of having children. So she laughed silently to herself and said, how could a worn-out woman like me enjoy such pleasure, especially when my master, my husband, is also so old? Then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Why did she say, can an old woman like me have a baby? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return about this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she denied it, saying, I didn't laugh. But the Lord said, no, you did laugh. Maybe you've had an experience like that, got caught saying the wrong thing. Um, Sarah's just reacting like most of us do, <laughs> to be honest, if we're honest, when God says, I'm going to do something for you, seems impossible, it is impossible, and in our human minds, we doubt, we say, how could that happen? That's not very likely, that's not possible, and so they're simply having this interaction. I think what we can note from this part of Abraham's story of following God is that something amazing happens here, in that Jesus himself comes to visit. There's a term in, uh, kind of in, in theology, biblical studies, uh, the term is Christophany. And a Christophany is an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament, before the incarnation, before he was uh, born as a baby and took on flesh. And Jesus does appear in the Old Testament. He shows up and appears to people and interacts with them. And in this case, he appears to Abraham, who is to be the father of the Jewish nation. God is doing something new and profound in the world. He's chosen a man to build a nation of people out, out of who will represent him to the world. They'll be the revelation of God to the world. And so Jesus comes to, uh, to build this connection with Abraham, to uh, deepen the relationship between Abraham and God. God wants to go much deeper with Abraham. Abraham recognizes the importance of the visitor bowing down and worshiping, uh, going to prepare a meal, quickly uh, preparing, serving his guests. His knowledge uh, was of um, that this person was important. He has a recognition of who has shown up at his home. And so Abraham gets an opportunity to interact with God at a deeper level. We can spend time with people and not really grow intimate with them. God wants intimacy. He wants depth of relationship, real knowing and understanding, real relating, deep connection. This is what God, this is what God wants. And yet uh, the truth is that we can, by being around people, even in our faith, being around God, spending time in our, our quiet time every morning and going to church each week, we can grow familiar, right, familiar with God without developing intimacy Familiarity and intimacy are not the same. Each has a value in life, certainly in married life, but one, uh, but one is no substitute for the other. If one is confused for the other, we have the basis for major human and marital unrest. In marriage, familiarity is inescapable. It happens almost without our awareness. But intimacy is usually hard to come by. It must be desperately sought and opened up and responded to. 
Familiarity brings a degree of ease and comfort. Intimacy anxiously searches for deep understanding and personal appreciation. We want intimacy. Sometimes we guard ourselves and we put up our walls uh, so we won't get hurt and we can keep intimacy from happening. We certainly can have that happen in our marriages. And so the truth is that we also can experience that with God. And I want to encourage you that what God does with Abraham today in our text is he spends time, he goes deeper, and we're going to see in a bit how God actually brings Abraham in to a process that's a, that allows Abraham to learn about his character and grow to trust him more. It's the nature of what God wants with you. He wants intimacy. He wants to know you more deeply. We've talked about our uh, vision for discipleship, uh, chair one, chair two, chair three, and chair four, four chair discipleship. It's a vision for discipleship. Each chair reflects the call of Jesus on your life. And the first chair is a person who's seeking. They're open to who is Jesus. They haven't yet trusted in him, but they're open to exploring his claims, uh, trying to make a determination of who is he. Um, are his claims true? And in that process of discovery, uh, when an individual reaches a point where they're, um, they've become convinced that Jesus is in fact who he claimed to be, that he claimed to be God and that he is in fact God, he claimed to be able to forgive sin, he can in fact be able to, for, he is able to forgive sin, he claimed that his death on the cross would pay for sin and it did in fact do that. He claimed that he would rise again on the third day, proving that he was powerful over sin and death, and he did in fact do that. And when a person reaches that point through the process of discovery, they reach a point where they're ready to put their trust in him, they move to chair two. A person moved into chair two says, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that he did die on the cross, and that his death on the cross was, was able to pay for and cover my sin. And so a person moving into chair two says, I'm going to put my trust in what Jesus did. His death on the cross was enough to pay for my sin. I'm going to trust in him, his sacrifice for me. And as Ephesians 2.8.9 says, it is by grace that we're saved. So a person putting their trust in Jesus knows there's nothing they can do to earn salvation, but simply because of the grace of God, because of his goodness and mercy, I'm going to put my trust in him and he's going to give me the salvation. And that salvation means that I've been made right with God. I've been justified, the Bible says. I've been made right. Um, scripture says when I put my trust in Jesus, my faith in him, it is as though I never sinned. Because the, the work of Jesus, his death on the cross, his blood shed for me, covers my sin. And so God the Father sees me now in Christ. He sees me inside of the sacrifice Jesus made. So no longer am I bound to pay for and be identified with my sin but I can be seen through the work of Jesus. So I'm forgiven and my sins are, uh, are gone and God forgets them. The Bible says he forgets because he, uh, but he willfully does it. He doesn't hold those things against me. And then I become set aside for God, sanctified. I begin to live for God. And, and this is the chair two is the process of discovery where I begin to understand and learn about the character of God. And like Abraham, I begin to walk with him, learning to trust him, learning to be able to rely on what he says. And then I also know that um, I'm going to spend eternity with him uh, after this life. And so I experience that salvation. I receive it as a free gift. And this is what it means to move into chair two. And when I'm in chair two, as I said, I begin to grow and learn about who God is. Learn about his character. I begin to experience the Holy Spirit's presence in my life. The Holy Spirit begins to prompt me and urge me and teach me. Convict me of things. 
all of a sudden I feel bad about stuff I didn't feel bad about before. And I go, man, I really, I really got to stop doing that. And that's the presence of the Holy Spirit. I begin to get prompted, pushed in directions to do things that I wouldn't want to do. That's the Holy Spirit. Um, there are some, uh, there are some uh, things that masquerade or are missed or misinterpreted as the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives. And I hear this on occasion. I hear people say, well, God's given me a peace. I've had people come to me, God's given me a peace about whatever it is, uh, leaving my spouse, getting divorced, whatever, whatever thing it might be. And I go, well, hold on. Um, uh, that peace isn't coming from the Holy Spirit because Scripture actually speaks in the opposite direction of that, right? It says that, no, God's not for that. And so he wouldn't be giving you a peace about it because that wouldn't come from him. And so there, there's some learning to, to discover and decipher the Holy Spirit's presence and his voice in our lives. Having a peace about something can just come because you've quit struggling with it, <laughs> quit fighting against it. A peace can come over you that doesn't mean God's giving you that peace. And so we've got to learn to engage the scriptures as well so that we can decipher and learn to understand when it is the Holy Spirit. There's also a strong movement in our world uh, towards happiness. And if something makes me happy, then God must want me to do that because God wants me to be happy. And, uh, you know, the truth is that your happiness is not first and foremost on God's priority list. <laughs> I mean, he certainly wants you to be happy. The Bible talks about happiness uh, coming to us. We can be blessed, uh, and that means happy. But happiness is a result of obedience. So when we're obedient to God, then we grow to experience happiness in a rich, deep way. But happiness is not God's first priority for you. What his first priority is to help you grow. So what I've found is when the Holy Spirit is his presence in my life, does not start off with good feelings. Usually starts off with a push in a direction that I don't want to go. The fact that I stand up here each week and speak publicly cracks me up. Because when I was a young man, I would have been the last person anyone had picked to do this. I was scared to death of it. I, didn't, I had no desire to do it. And yet throughout my life, that poke that God kept poking me to continue to do it. I'd do it and say that was horrible. Nobody got anything out of that. What am I doing? God, this is the wrong direction. He just wouldn't let me go. And so the Holy Spirit doesn't make you comfortable. He typically prompts you in directions that you need to go in. You may be resistant to. So be aware of that. You've got to be able to identify the Holy Spirit, his work in your life. That's one of the ways you're going to grow in chair two and develop and discover more about God. You've got to know the scriptures. The word of God is there for us to uh, confirm to us and help work in tandem with the Holy Spirit. And then we have the church relationships that we gain by being here. We are um, encouraging uh, discipleship in our church. You know that if you've been here. That's our vision. That's where God's taking us because we recognize he's called us. Jesus called us to make disciples. And so we have a process. We're trying to encourage movement and growth in your life and that, that you would grow as a disciple. But without a connection in a relationship with someone that's going to push you and, and challenge you at times, then the truth is that most of us aren't going to grow. We kind of seek comfort. We seek that spot in the lazy boy where we can just sit and, and be comfortable. But that isn't where we're supposed to be. That's not God's plan for us. It's, there's certainly seasons that we can enjoy that, but that's not the destination. And so we need to be engaged in the relationships. The Bible says iron sharpens iron, right? And I know so many people that 
don't want anything to do with the church, full of hypocrites, and they push away from relationships because they're all conflict. And I, I find it um, interesting because let me just tell you once again, God's plan for you is that you would grow to be able to navigate conflict in relationships. And when you run away from them or push away from them because it's too hard, you now slow down your growth. You're not developing the way God wants you to. So God puts us together knowing that we'll probably bang heads sometimes. We're going to disagree. We're going to fight. We're going to have different opinions, okay? That's important. That's part of your development, maturity. It's part of your growth. In all of it, God wants us to gain a familiarity, but more than a a familiarity, an intimacy with him. So we can identify him. We know as we're walking through life that he's with us. I know way too many Christians are not sure that God's with them, that he hears their prayers. They're going to spend eternity with him in heaven. They're just not sure. There's no reason for that because God wants to build your confidence in him, your knowledge of him, your intimacy with him, so you know. University of Northern Iowa once had an art class, general art course. It included this unusual exercise. The teacher came in one day with a bag full of lemons. She passed out a lemon to every student and said, you need to keep this lemon with you for the next week. Do everything with it. Don't take it out of your sight. Keep it in your pocket, whatever. Keep it with you at all times. Smell it. Uh, become, you know, uh, become aware of its presence. Learn about the lemon. And so they did that for a week. And at the end of the week, suddenly, she had, they came into class. She said, give me your lemons. Put them all uh, back in the, in the bag and then spread them out on a table. And told the class, now find your lemon. And surprisingly enough, most of the students found their lemon. And the truth is that we can grow to know God. Jesus said, listen, those that belong to me, they're going to know me. There's going to be a a knowledge of each other, an awareness of each other that's deep and profound. John 10, 27, Jesus said, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. Jesus tells his disciples that those who love him and obey him, God's going to come up and is going to come into their life and establish residence in their life. John 14, 23, Jesus replied, all who love me, We'll do what I say. My Father will love them, and we will come and make our home with each of them. The power of presence, of relationship, of intimacy. God is building that with Abraham. I want to tell you that God wants to do the same thing in your life. He is present in your life if you trusted in him. He wants you to know him better and to grow deeper with him. Not just familiarity. Hey, God, good to see you again. How you doing this morning? No, a knowledge, an awareness of who he is. Knowing, and that requires knowing more about his character. Understanding how he's going to work in your life. What he is responsible for. What he's not responsible for. And growing to see the truth of a Romans 8, 28 that says, In all things God will work for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purposes. We see the things that happen to us as followers of Jesus as setbacks, as harmful to us. Yet God says that, no, I'm going to turn that into something good in your life. That's profound. That's powerful. We've got to grow to know God before we can understand that and experience it. Jesus told his disciples that the level of intimacy would go even deeper. In John 15, 15, he said this, I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now you are my friends. Since I have told you everything the Father told me. It's like, listen, I've I've brought you in on all of it. (laughs) My work, my ministry, 
what I'm here to accomplish, you can join me in that. See, too many of us settle for the, the bright, shiny things that this world has. Too many, too many of us settle for those. We play with those. You know, we have fun with them. And listen, that's part of life for all of us. That's not all there is. Jesus calls you into joining him in his work so that you can begin to invest in work that will last and produce fruit for eternity. To move into chair three is to answer the call of Jesus when he said to Peter, come follow me and I'll, I'll teach you to fish for men. Peter was a fisherman. He understood the career, understood the career of fishing. He knew all about it. He'd been raised in it. He understood the investment. He understood the work involved, the commitment. Got to get up early in the morning. Got to get out there when the fish are, uh, are uh, the best time to catch them if you want to be successful. He understood all that. And Jesus took that knowledge, that awareness that he had of his work and said, I'm going to teach you to do it aimed at the work of God. I'm going to teach you to do, take that same commitment, that same, uh, that same work ethic, all those same principles. Put it over here and invest it in the work of God. And guess what's going to happen? You're going to begin to produce stuff. Your work is going to produce fruit that will last for all eternity. That's powerful. That's powerful. I think if we really understood that, we'd spend a lot more time investing our days and our time in the work of God. We'd see the opportunity around us to do ministry and to care about people, invest in people, and to fish for men. And we would grow to become disciple makers. We haven't matured in Christ yet and become fully formed disciples until we're reproducing ourselves, until we're able to lead someone else to Jesus and help them grow to become a disciple. This work is powerful, and yet so many of us settle, so many Christians settle for less. In his book, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis notes how he believes, uh, or how believers often underestimate the full riches of God for his children. Lewis says this, if we consider the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're like half-hearted creatures. Like, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. We settle for playing with the things in this life. And listen, they play a role. We can enjoy them. They're good. A lot of them are good. But when we have the perspective that Jesus wants to give us, that we're here on this planet to make a difference for eternity, see, then we can begin to really invest our lives. We can be re really begin to do the things that really matter and are powerful and that make a difference. True wealth is found in Jesus. Patrick Henry said this, uh, said uh, at the end of his life, he said, I've now disposed of all my property to my family. I've divvied it all out. There's one thing more I wish I could give them, and that is faith in Jesus Christ. If they had that and I'd given them nothing else, they would have the whole world. They would be rich. But if they don't have that, and I gave them everything on the planet, they would be poor indeed. God is going to take Abraham through an exercise to reveal his character to him. Jesus, as their story continues today, Jesus shows Abraham that justice comes from his character. Let's continue reading Genesis 18 and verse 21. So the Lord told Abraham, I have heard a great outcry from Sodom and Gomorrah because their sin is so flagrant I'm going down to see if their actions are as wicked as I have heard. If not, I want to know. 
The other men turned and headed toward Sodom, but the Lord remained with Abraham. Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away both the righteous and the wicked? Suppose you and 50 righteous people, or, or suppose, you find, uh, suppose you find 50 righteous people living there in the city. Will you still sweep it away and not spare it for their sakes? Surely you wouldn't do such a thing, destroying the righteous along with the wicked. Why, you would be treating the righteous and the wicked exactly the same. Surely you wouldn't do that. Should not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And the Lord replied, If I find 50 righteous people in Sodom, I will spare the entire city for their sake. Abraham goes on to negotiate with God. It's a very interesting interaction. He says, what if there's 45? And he says, what if there's just 30? What if there's 20? Finally gets down, what if there's 10? And God says, yeah, yep, Abraham, if there's 10, I won't destroy the city. It makes it appear that maybe God wasn't aware of how many righteous people were in Sodom and Gomorrah. Can I assure you that God knew? Uh, He knew before he came down to meet with Abraham what the condition of the area was spiritually. He knew where they were at. He knew what each person was doing and where they were at in their hearts. But he does something with Abraham to teach Abraham about who he is. He allows Abraham in on his plan and process. And he says, yeah, yeah, if there's not, if I've misjudged things, I certainly want to know. And Abraham gets involved. It pulls Abraham in as it does so many of us. Well, God, are you going to do the right thing, the just thing? You know, wiping these people out, pronouncing judgment, that's so harsh. I mean, what if there's some good people? What if they have a good heart? What what if they're really a good person? What if they're trying hard? We we don't trust that judgment. And Abraham didn't either. And so God said, yeah, I'll take you through the process. I'll show you who I really am. God knew already there weren't ten righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah. There was one half-hearted follower of God, and that was Lot. And so God already knew, and he, already, he was going to fulfill his plan um, to, to be a restraint against evil in the world. And God must do that. He must provide restraints against evil, or the whole world would be filled with evil. And there'd be nothing righteous done. And we'd be killing each other, destroying each other, misusing each other, because that's what humans do. And so God has to work against us. He has to stop us from destroying ourselves. And that's God's goodness. That's his love for his, uh, his creation. And so it is out of mercy, in a sense, that he does deal with some to be a restraint against evil. Yet some people in our world today, many, really struggle with the idea of God's justice and judgment. It's a little unsettling. The idea that I'm going to stand before God and face judgment at some point is terrifying. Someone who knows everything I've ever done or thought every motivation I've ever had, perfectly, I do not want to face that kind of judgment. That's terrifying. And it's right to be terrified of it. Yet it's the truth. The Bible makes it clear. In fact, it must happen. Or else there is nothing. There is no such thing as justice. If we don't give an accounting for what we've done, and if others don't give an accounting for what they've done, then justice can't exist. So it must happen. We know that. But we're fearful of it. And so many deflect that fear by saying things like this. Well, I'm not worried about it. Hell's where the party's going to be. Yeah, no, I'm happy going there, right? It's a deflection away from facing judgment. Embrace the punishment, right? I'll play the opposite card, and that'll make it go away. Some say, well, God made me this way, and so if he says it's wrong and what I'm doing is wrong, well, he made me this way, well, then uh, it's his fault. He can't judge me for that. 
I've heard plenty of that in my life. I've also heard this idea that it's just too cruel that God would judge people or punish people for their sin and send a bunch of people to hell. It's just cruel. It's not a good God. Others say, no, God's grace and mercy and his love will override his justice and judgment so everyone will end up in heaven. And so these are all deflections away from the issue. They're a dishonest answer to the real truth. And the real truth is that we all are sinners. We have broken the commands of God. We've gone against what he created us to be and do. We're personally responsible, and we're going to face up to that. You want the person that wronged you to face up to what they've done, but you don't want to face judgment for what you've done. It's, 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 It's understandable, and yet it's wrong. We've got to deal with the truth. And God is trying to show Abraham who he really is. Listen, I am fair. I am a righteous judge. Yeah, I'll consider your arguments here. I'll consider your position as though God hadn't already gone through this. <laughs> of course he had. Because God's character is righteous. He is fair and just. We're the ones who are not. That's why the Bible says don't enact revenge on someone for what they've done. Don't try to deal with an issue where you've been wronged. And the reason for that is that as human beings, we're prone not to justice when we've been wronged, but to revenge. (laughs) I don't want an eye for an eye. I want two eyes for an eye. Right? I want them to pay for what they did. Come on. We're not righteous in our judgment. We're not fair. I don't want you to be my judge. (laughs) I'm going to stand up before God. I might have wronged you. I might have done something that upset you. I'm going to get an unfair judgment. God is the only fair judge. He loves all of us. He cares about all of us. He knows us intimately, created us. He's aware of every thought, every action, every intention. Oh, he's he's absolutely fair and righteous. We don't want to face his judgment, but it's the only right thing. God did end up destroying Sodom and Gomorrah, the whole area. He annihilated it, wiped it out, burned it with sulfur. Many look at that and just, it's so, it's so cruel of God. And yet so few look at the behavior of the people that God does judge, what they were doing to each other, how they were behaving. And their behavior, their abuse of one another, always warrants the judgment that God gives them because he is just and fair and righteous. We've got to learn that if we're going to grow to trust God, trust what the scriptures say. The movement of our world is to say things aren't wrong that God says are wrong. That's consenting adults. They're not hurting anybody. Just let them do their thing. That's how we live. That's what we tell each other. It's what we want to hear. Because we've adopted a core value of permissiveness. We're permissive. I'll let you do what you want to do, so you let me do what I want to do, and we're all happy. Because we don't know why we're here. We don't know the commands of God. And we don't know the purpose for our existence. And we haven't experienced forgiveness and grace and mercy. And so we walk around trying to find happiness in this life without knowing the God who made us. And so we're, we're lost. And so, of course, people want the, the, the little bit of happiness they can find doing the things that they think are enjoyable. But permissiveness isn't real love. It's selfishness. Well, I don't want to deal with the conflict involved in saying that what you're doing might be wrong (laughs) just go ahead and do it i'll just back off wash my hands you do what's making you happy as long as it doesn't affect me right and so permissiveness isn't real love real love is speaking the truth 
Real love is urging someone in the right direction. It's contending for someone's life. God did not just permissively allow the human race to do whatever we wanted. He came to save us, sacrificed himself so that we wouldn't have to face the judgment for our sins. So we could be saved, turned around, made right, able to do the good things that God created us to do. And the truth is that the freedom that we have, because God created us with free will, requires that we acknowledge God and submit to his authority and leadership. The only hope for us as a people is that we would understand the importance of coming under God's authority and, and, and recognizing his rule and his direction because that's good. He's going to lead us to treat each other better, to love each other, right? To show grace and mercy to each other instead of judgment, instead of harshness, instead of revenge. It's been said that injustice is relatively easy to bear. What stings is justice. <laughs> My kids used to argue for fairness when they were fighting as kids. And say, you don't want fairness. <laughs> fairness will not go in your direction, okay? Will not end up to your benefit. And so we need to understand that. God shows Abraham who he is. He reveals to him his just character so that Abraham, Abraham can grow to trust him more. And you and I need to do the same. Ultimately, God does what he says he will do. We're going to jump ahead to Genesis 21 to wrap up this sermon in the series with God fulfilling the promise that he made to them. God gives Abraham and Sarah a son. Genesis 21, starting in verse 1, the Lord kept his word and did for Sarah exactly what he had promised. She became pregnant. She gave birth to a son for Abraham in his old age. This happened at just the time God had said it would, and Abraham named their son Isaac. God fulfilled his promise. I want to encourage you today that the promises that God makes in Scripture are absolutely within his ability to fulfill and that if you will learn to trust him and walk with him and wait on him and grow intimate with him that you will see those promises fulfilled in your life when God says uh, take my yoke on you learn from me my yoke is easy my burden is light it's true we don't experience it usually because we continue to try to carry the yoke of the world, the yoke that we want to carry, all the responsibilities on us, or carrying the weight of the world, I've got to do all of it. And so we continue to labor under a yoke that's crushing. And that's why some of you are crushed, emotionally crushed, you're angry at everybody, you're not, you're not, you're not keeping your stuff together because you're under too much pressure because you're carrying a yoke that Jesus doesn't want you to carry. He says, listen, take it off, give that one to me. And I'll give you a lighter yoke. I'll give you a yoke that allows you to experience peace. That gives you some joy. But we've got to learn to trust him. We've got to learn to uh, allow him to take that yoke off. And so we've got to learn to trust the promises of Jesus. Are you grounded in the promises in Scripture? Are you trusting in them? Are you growing to rely on them? Are you letting God develop intimacy with you in your life? so that you can trust him more. This is the process of growth. It'll take you to the next step. And listen, wherever you're at, there's a lot more. There's more that God has for you. There's more he wants you to experience. There's more about him that he wants you to know. I just want to call you to that, to continue to move towards him. 
He loves you. He cares about you. Who he is will change your life. God, thank you for your love for us, the intimacy that you offer us and you want to develop with us. God, I pray that you would help us to uh, continue to press in, not to put up the guards, put up the walls, to keep you out for fear that you might hurt us, but, Father, to open up and to trust you more and to grow in the relationship that you want to have with us and to, to get to know who you are better. Father, I pray that you'd help us to continue to trust you, that your character is righteous and good, and that everything that comes from you is to our benefit. Father, help us to walk in that and to begin to grow to the point that we can trust your promises, that we can live in them and swim in them and exist in them so that we can become the people who can help others find you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.